This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, today we have fan favorite, Dr. Tom Davidoff. That's right. I think this is his umpteenth time on the show, which is, uh, it's always good that Tom takes time and he's a fascinating guy. This is a great conversation today. It's it's long, I'm going to warn you, it's but the it's longest, uh, riveting. It's the longest episode we've ever Maybe had. Out. Depends how long we are here. Yeah, but it's uh, it's probably going to be pretty close to an hour. But lots of interesting things that we cover, and and obviously one of the things that we have been trying to do, we did it last year. We're doing it again this year. Tom's predictions on the 2018 market. Yeah, and you'll have to wait for that. But I mean, in all seriousness, I could listen to Tom Davidoff talk all day. I heard him. You know, I was driving. He was on the CBC the other day, and I got in my car, and it was like it's the most distinct voice. Yeah, you, uh, you know can imagine, <laughs> right? Like the second I heard it, I was like, ah, oh, Tom David up. He never has to announce, <laughs> tell somebody who's calling. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So that's going to be great. But Matt, before we get to our interview with Tom, we got a couple things, uh, some house cleaning. Well, we got a new website that's going to be launched in the next couple of days. I it can't is, wait. We've been working on this. This has been a, a labor of love, a lot of work done in the last couple of months. We've uh, gone to a different format entirely, right? Because it's it's much more, we've, we've got a lot of user feedback 
and people were just saying it's it's not easy to kind of dive into the information. So this is information heavy, lots of great news stories, lots of great stats, information about real estate, and it's it's phenomenal. It, it'll knock your socks off. So so watch out for that for sure. And that's at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. So check for that. Yeah, and Matt. Also, before we get to our interview with Tom, what else do we got? Well, we got reviews. Oh yeah, reviews. Right, right. We got right. a. I mean, we're 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 still at one twenty five. I think I, I think feel we've like this got. Was- all 125 listeners reviewed it and nobody else is out there. But if you appreciate what we're doing uh, and if you learn something from the show, the biggest compliment that you can give us is either getting in touch or going on to the platform that you use, whether it be iTunes or or Pod Parrot or, 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 or Google. Pod, Pod Parrot? Pod, Pod, Pod Parrot, I think, is I a think thing. That, that's a thing. I think Pod Tails a thing for sure. Pod Tails. Uh, Ducktails, <laughs> wherever <A> you're, woohoo, <laughs> wherever, wherever you're going. Um, but yeah, go and leave us a review, preferably a five star review. Yeah, preferably. And, but uh, no, we'd love to hear from you. Absolutely. But uh, this is a long one, and it's a good one. So maybe without further ado, we should cut to our interview with Tom Davidoff. Enjoy. Okay, so we're here with Tom Davidoff, Associate Professor at UBC Sauter School of Business. How are you doing, Tom? Doing great. Happy New Year. Yeah, yeah Happy New, New Year. Year. Happy New Year, dude. Thanks uh, for taking the time, Tom. Yeah, seems like a pretty good New Year for uh, people shopping for condos, too, huh? You know, it, it does. Yeah, it seems to be, uh, you know, over the holidays was, was a little soft, but particularly one beds and lower price two beds seem to be very active right now. Yeah, what have you heard, Tom? Yeah, You know, I, I don't know. I'm just getting a vibe that stuff's softening. I think single families, you know, we've talked about this, but the higher end is weaker. But this single family just seems really weak. And yep. I, I am just so interested to see what happens with condo this year. We talked about it last week. There were some really great houses that kind of sat over the holidays. Um, single family. Single family, yeah, yeah. exactly. But, uh, but no, also I, I this, think you're right. Well, this last weekend was the first weekend where, you know, it seemed like people were out shopping again. And we had some some units on the market with a lot of uh, a lot of traction through the open houses. But word on the street was, uh, yeah, some people were uh, a little surprised at the outcome. So we'll see what, I mean, this mm, reminds yeah. me of last January, though. I mean, right. where everybody mm-hmm. kind of hits pause and... You know, in this case, it's the stress test and, you know, potentially the interest rate increase. But uh, but, but we'll then, save the predictions till the end of the show, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. <laughs> so, Tom, maybe... But, you, know, but, but, you know, last January, I, right, it, was, it, wasn't till, it wasn't till February it turned around and then it went just absolutely bananas. Exactly. Right. And you know what? If you go out to, like, Port Moody, Central Coquitlam, New West, like, these areas are really busy right now and they have been yeah. over the last uh, month or two especially in you know the kind of the sub eight hundred thousand dollar range mm-hmm. so um but maybe talk okay. just quickly be well just uh for guests that or for listeners that haven't uh you've been on the show several times you're you're uh, a fan favorite guest and a fan favorite but can you tell us a little bit about yourself yeah, sure. Uh, I'll go way back. I grew up in New York listening to uh, Donald Trump talk about his own real estate uh, projects. <laughs> Fast forwarding a little bit, uh, worked in, uh, for a shopping center developer after college uh, and uh, then went off uh, as, as I planned to go uh, learn about uh, government and politics, got turned on to economics, did a degree joint in economics and urban planning at MIT, uh, and then uh, taught for several years at UC Berkeley uh, in the business school and then came to the business school here at uh, Sauter. 
uh, in Vancouver. You know, along the way, I uh, worked for uh, a little bit in the uh, Obama Council of Economic Advisors during the U.S. housing crash. And, you know, uh, the U.S. housing crisis, everybody wanted to talk to the real estate economist. So I did a bunch of media. I got to Vancouver and I said, all right, well, that's it. You know, I'll just be quiet and do my own research. And then, um, you know, got involved in policy a little bit when everybody was going crazy about empty homes and escalating housing prices. A bunch of colleagues and I put together a, um, you know, a tax proposal that we thought would, uh, you know, not target anybody's nationality, but maybe, you know, cool down some elements of the marketplace, you know, not driven by local incomes. That got some traction. We'll see what the NDP does with it. And, uh, you know, I've also been a little agitated about uh, zoning here because, you know, as an economist, you see land worth, you know, a gazillion dollars an acre going to single family. And, uh, you know, a lot of people like it the way it is, but I've I've tried to uh, be a little provocative with that as well. On that note, Tom, uh, so you're currently in a, a bit of a Twitter battle with past guest Michael Geller. Where's the beef? You know, Michael Geller, uh, to his great credit, is, uh, you know, has really been somebody who's been one of the loudest advocates for so-called gentle densification. So you take single family uh, neighborhoods and in a realistic way that doesn't make the neighbors angry, you allow laneway houses like the city's doing, maybe, you know, stack townhomes on the arterials. You know, so add some real real density, but but not make the neighbors upset because the na- the neighborhood's really changing in character, right? I mean, if you build fifty story towers where people have detached single family homes with yards, you can see that people are going to object. Okay, so where did we get into a disagreement? Because, you know, I largely agree with Michael. And I also think preserving amenities is important. I think Michael's right about that. Uh, I don't think we want to go to 50 stories tall. That's the free market. And, you know, I certainly have some economist colleagues who say it doesn't make any sense to have any zoning protections. You know, let the market do whatever it wants uh, most of the time, unless there's a good reason not to. So anyway, so, you know, as you may know, Hector Bremner, uh, the new city council member, went right to work uh, as promised and said, well, let's take the most egregiously underzoned neighborhood in Vancouver. And uh, I guess you'd call that Northwest Point Gray. Uh, I, I don't know the neighborhood too well, which which tells you something, even though I, I bike you know, very close to it. Either if I take 8th Avenue to UBC or Marine Drive, it's sort of sandwiched in between there. Uh, but it's a sort of sleepy residential area with very large lots with, the, you know, I'm guessing very luxurious homes. And, you know, the, the prices there have to be, you know, the entry point's got to be pretty close to double digit millions. So what he said is, well, you know what let's do is let's uh, allow rental apartment buildings there. And I think he obviously meant that to be somewhat provocative. And, you know, it wouldn't make it probably wouldn't make a huge difference to affordability in Vancouver. But he, I think what he was saying is, hey, you know, why not? What is the point of large lot single family zoning? in that neighborhood. And it's actually pretty well situated. You know, it's near UBC. It's near a bunch of bus lines on 4th Avenue. So just why is it that you don't allow anything but luxurious, huge lot, single family homes there? So he put that to council. Council sort of nixed it. And, you know, I just wrote a uh, editorial piece with Sewer Somerville and Josh Gottlieb where we mentioned, you know, the city's doing a good job talking about zoning, but let's actually do it. 
And so we mentioned that neighborhood specifically, and Geller said, oh, come on, that's ridiculous. You don't turn a luxury single-family home community to allow six-story rental buildings. That's just too much change. So that was Michael's position, and I, you know, I beg to differ. And uh, we would encourage all our listeners to go to Twitter and <laughs> look at the disagreement because it's it's good reading for sure. Is it provocative uh, looking at Northwest Point Grey, or is the city council's response indicative of of a larger problem with the city of Vancouver and and housing? You know, I, I think people sometimes there's a failure of imagination, a failure to step back and, and see what's really going on with policy. We sort of, you look at a neighborhood like Northwest Point Grey, and I think you say, well, of course I can't live there. That That's for rich guys with mansions. You don't put a town home there. I, you know, that's that would require a subsidy. You'd be sort of ha- using the government to massively distort the market. You know, the free market is rich people get to live there. And I don't. And I, I'm not going to mess with that. You know, maybe I, I can have an apartment on the east side somewhere, but I don't belong in a rental building near UBC if I'm just middle class. I, I bet a lot of people would have that reaction. And I think that's Michael's sort of knee jerk reaction as well. But he's wrong. You know, if you look at any city, when you fly in an airplane into a city, you always see smaller buildings on bigger lots. Uh, then, you know, farms, mansions, whatever, when you're far away from downtown. But when the land's really, really valuable, close to downtown, you get tall buildings and eventually office towers and very tall apartment buildings. And I mean, that's like Econ 101. The better the land, the more building goes on it. Mm-hmm. On the west side of Vancouver, I mean, you look at Chicago, they build skyscrapers all over the place. And, you know, I don't know, but I think you'd be hard pressed to find land anywhere in Chicago that's more expensive uh, for a given level of zoning than the west side neighborhoods of Vancouver. Uh, you know, apartments just don't sell for as much as they do here. So, you know, the free market it would probably build 50-story towers everywhere on the west side left to its own devices. And that means rich guys with who, who really insist on having a mansion with maybe a swimming pool and a yard, you know, you'd think they could compete with anybody for land, but they wouldn't be able to mm-hmm. because a developer selling, you know, $50 million units uh, or more is just going to crush in terms of ability to pay or willingness to pay uh, some rich guy who just wants a single unit, you know, $20 million mansion. So it, in fact, the government if you can believe it, is putting its thumb on the scale in Northwest Point Grey to say, we we want to discourage regular people from living in this neighborhood in apartments, and we want to guarantee that super rich people don't have to compete with developers for big lots where you could put apartment buildings. And then you ask yourself, what public purpose could you possibly be trying to achieve Right. Usually what you do is you say, well, the free market is great, but there's some problems with it. What are the problems with the free market? Well, sometimes, you know, poor people are born, you know, kids are born into tough circumstances. It's not their fault. And the free market won't take care of them. Well, does large lot zoning take care of poor children? You know, far from it. You're you're taking middle class people and telling them they can't live somewhere and you're handing a deal to rich people. So that can't be the reason for, for exclusion. Maybe you'd say it's good for the environment because there's trees in Northwest Point Grey that would go away if you build condos. There's some truth to that. But if you don't build the condos in Northwest Point Grey, where do they go? On the margin, a lot of them are going out to Langley, uh, you know, which is, as, as we've talked about, a place where people sort of drive to qualify for a mortgage. Uh, 
So you're destroying the environment by underusing urban land, which makes you overuse suburban and exurban land where people have to drive instead of biking or busing or doing a short drive to work. So the free market, you know, it's probably better. Uh, you know, there's environmental positives and redistribution positives from moving to moving from suburban style zoning in an urban neighborhood uh, to allowing the market to do a bit of its magic. You don't have to allow 50 story towers, but you could allow six or eight. So Michael's defending to me the indefensible by saying the government should continue to intervene by banning affordable or at least middle-class housing uh, in the best land in Vancouver. You know, just thinking of your your answer here, Tom, I mean, it seems uh, obviously unjust, right, the current zoning. What what do you think? Is it kind of the weight of history and, and zoning practices that just leads to guys like Michael Gower and, this, and counselors to to think this is impossible? Or is it, you know, donations by rich people or they have a stronger voice or why is this is it why does this seem uh incomprehensible to so many people it's a great question you know northwest point gray obviously the people are phenomenally wealthy maybe they're influential but you know you meet the city councilors and uh to say it in a nice way it's not exactly the davos set you know, I I don't know that somebody who can afford a mansion in, in Point Grey is going to be spending their afternoons, no offense, with Melissa DeGeneva and... Uh, Name names, Tom. And, yeah, and uh, uh, whoever. So, uh, uh, Raymond Louie, right? You know, like, it, you know, well, I, I was going to go hang around with Justin Trudeau and the Dalai Lama or uh, whatever, but I uh, think, think I'll go hang out at City Council on Main Street. So... <laughs> or can be whatever. So, right. So, I, I don't know. I don't know about Northwest Point Gray, but Kerrisdale is a good example, right? Because it's not so much donors, but a lot of sort of meat and potatoes, just regular Vancouverites own single-family homes all over the city. You know, they got in when it was a lot more affordable, and and they're the base. You know, single-family mm-hmm. homeowning people in their fifties and sixties who bought. When the world was just very, very different, I mean, I'm sure they struggled like everybody else to get a place. But, you know, uh, that, that that's the base of voters, and, and they don't like change, and I can't blame them. Now, look, if, if you allow people to build at greater density, their homes become worth a lot more money. But until they want to sell and move, they're already sitting on a $2 million house. How do they benefit from right. the, the guy next door building an apartment? I think it's probably more about grumpy and active voters in community groups uh, than it is about the uber rich, you know, bribing people with donations or, or not even necessarily bribing, but, you know, motivating people with donations. Hmm. Now, if you want to be conspiratorial, uh, arguably, if I was a big apartment developer, the kind of people who fund uh, Vision and I'm guessing the NPA, I might really like the status quo zoning. We've talked about this, but I, I think a lot of the value added for local developers is the difficulty of finding a place to build and getting right. it approved, right? Right. If you had an easy system of building and just made it easy and transparent, then you just go to who's the low cost guy who's, who, who, who does this production type stuff, you know, cheaply and, and well, and, and that's a different skill set from being, you know, politically hooked up. Again, I'm not sure that's what's going on, but that that would be a more cynical uh, view of what's going on with the addiction to um, suburban 
urban-style zoning on land that costs $40 million bucks an acre. So, Tom, we've had some major policy shifts in Vancouver over the past few months. What are your thoughts on, uh, on these changes? Well, you know, the city does seem to be saying, we're, hey, you know, just watch. We're going to do something with these single-family neighborhoods. Um, you know, I, I think you're talking uh, about the rezoning stuff here. Yeah, basically the, the city's the, policy in, in, in November largely. Yeah, you know, I support support definitely their statements of, of what they're planning to do. You know, concretely, what they what are they doing uh, in the city? You know, I think they do sort of piecemeal stuff. They have strategies to get more rental built, and anytime they act, I'm for it. I, I, I guess they've given themselves an umbrella and a and a, and a strategy for in, you know sort of project level tactics. Uh, but I think the point of our article was, you know, let's see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I think my understanding of your your article was, you know, they came out with this fairly bold proposal in November, and then in December, totally shut down any sort of rezoning in in Point Grey, which suggests that it might be more pie in the sky than actual on the ground changes. You know, there's an election coming up this year, and I think the specific language about single-family neighborhoods was we're going to start looking very carefully at different options <laughs> for adding density. And, and they have done it to their credit. I mean, you know, long ago, uh, the city moved to allow laneway in just about all single-family neighborhoods, and it, and it does get taken up when, when you build new homes in a lot of the city. So maybe they mean what they say, but what they didn't do is say, that's it, you know, we're going to strike the word single family from any uh, objectives in our planning documents, because preserve the single family character of this neighborhood, you know, still lives on in a lot of community vision plans. Just out of curiosity, Tom, Gregor Robertson has said he's not going to run for re-election. Are you in the uh, good riddance camp? No, you got to follow uh, Tom on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm not. You know, one reason is he's actually invited me to talk to him many times and uh, has has listened when, when I've said over and over and over. You know, they even made a joke. I, I, I arrived late to one of these wet strategize w- with people about what we can do about zoning meetings. And uh, one of his aides sort of joked, you know, OK, that's it. We're not going to do anything about single family neighborhoods. Right, everybody? You know, like uh, you know, so th- they've heard me uh, parrot again and again, you know, no single family zoning um, going forward. Uh, and, you know, and, and on taxes, I think the empty homes tax was really a very, very good idea. You know, it do- doesn't target anybody's nationality, but it does say, you know, if you have an Airbnb or uh, sort of pied-a-terre or what have you, that, that's that's going to pay differently from somebody who's an income taxpayer or, or, or a landlord who's, who's actually providing housing for people who live and work here. So I, I think, you know, uh, He's mostly gotten it right. You know, he promised to end homelessness. The problem there is, I, th- I think the city's done a lot of nice things for homeless people. But, uh, you know, when you do nice things for homeless people, you get more homeless people. It's, it, that doesn't mean it's not the right thing to do, but it makes it very devilishly hard to eliminate the issue of homelessness in the city. So, you know, I think people can, can talk about his cozy relationships with developers, which, I, you know, I just don't know much about. Uh, certainly in no meeting I've been in with him would he say, yeah, but Ian Gillespie wouldn't like that. You know, I've, I've right. certainly <laughs> never heard that explicitly. Um, 
you know, so I think well-intentioned and, and, and dealing with a very difficult situation. You know, I've been here, this affordability thing, everybody knew there were affordability problems, but it really snuck up on us in the last three years. It just really, it went bananas. And, and I, I think to blame Gregor for that is hard. You know, I put a Twitter survey up and I said, you know, sort of like, are you A, happy or sad Gregor's leaving? And do you think the next mayor's going to be great or lousy? And you'd think people would be happy he's leaving because they think there's going to be a great next mayor. But the number one vote getter was, I'm happy he's leaving, and I think the next mayor is going to be lousy. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> <laughs> now, it's amazing how, just thinking about people that are so angry with Gregor Robertson, how it's, I guess, you know, a figurehead, not necessarily a figurehead, but how people gravitate towards, you know, certain certain reasons, right, These for for affordability when... I mean, it seems like this confluence of so many factors came to explode in his face, essentially. Well, it's really interesting. Like, you know, as a participant on Twitter where you get a lot of the the, the rage, <laughs> you know, everybody knows that they're right. So some people say, well, if we just build more apartments, that's it. It's going to be affordable. You know, maybe, maybe not. You know, uh, I, I think you really do have to do something on the tax side. Uh, and then... You know, some people say, well, we should just ban foreigners and throw them in jail. Well, you know, with the foreign buyer tax, we're now at 3% foreign buyers or so in Vancouver. Maybe it's 4%. Right. Okay. So you ban 4% of the market. You know, maybe you cut prices 8%, maybe, assuming none of that spills over into, you know, a corporation buying on behalf of somebody who then flips to a foreigner, immigrants getting, you know, legal immigrants getting getting money from overseas. But you're going to cut prices 50% by eliminating 4% of what's left of the foreign market. You know, there, there's just no, that, that, there's no way. So everybody knows that their individual solution is perfect. And if they were mayor, you know, facing a council that votes in a very conservative and cautious way, they would have done things extremely differently. You know, I, I think not corrupt. I mean, have, have, how many corruption scandals have, we, have yeah. we heard of in the last eight to 10 years? Yeah. You know, who's, who's gone to jail for taking a bribe? You know, just that level. Or, you know, falling asleep at the wheel. Yeah, he was away on vacation for some snowstorms. But I don't remember any, like, really egregious things where people had been warned that some city service wasn't working and, and, and the city didn't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. That, that may have happened. But you hear about that all the time at different levels of government. So... You know, I said one thing. Yeah, you know, the, the mayoral candidate I support is the super charismatic person with a spotless personal ethical record uh, who's a genius and uh, has a lot of business experience and government experience, doesn't say things to offend people and wants to give away their time for less than $200,000 a year, whatever the mayor gets paid, <laughs> you know, and gets screamed at publicly. It's not easy to find somebody like that. Yeah, okay. Yeah. okay. But the bike lanes. Which we support. <laughs> well, I love the bike lane. Yeah. You know, you know. Yeah. Don't get me started. It is hard to turn right sometimes, but it's, uh, it's they're <laughs> Not great on your, on your bike. It isn't <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh uh, yeah. Oh yeah. Driving. I'm sure. It's yeah. I used to. I, I will tell you. I used to live in North Vancouver and drive from UBC, and I thought the objective of city planning was to make it impossible to drive from Point Grey to the North Shore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true enough. So, Tom, the NDP budget is due in February. There's rumblings that there's going to be some major announcements regarding housing. Uh, any predictions of what's coming? No. Uh, you know, they, they've played their cards close to the vest. I've asked some of the sort of usual suspects who, who you'd think might be privy to what's going on. And, you know, I've had the good fortune in the last two or three years to meet a lot of the usual suspects. And uh, nobody knows. So 
I think the NDP, they may not have decided themselves. I know they're being very careful and they're trying to thread a needle. Uh, they don't want to cause, I don't think, a, a crash in, in real estate prices. I don't think they want to see a 50% correction, which, of course, is what it would take to get you know a lot of people to be able to buy into the market. Uh, at the same time, they can't do nothing. So, you know, if I had to guess, maybe they'll do something like phase in at a low rate an additional surcharge on people who one way or the other aren't income tax payers. You know, they've introduced, and you guys would know better than I do, a couple of new questions about sort of are you a tax resident of BC on the property transfer tax form? Is that right? Yeah. And on so, the contract, it's changed as well. But. Right. So in the uh, when the when the B.C. liberals brought in foreign buyer tax before they did that, they started asking about nationality. So maybe they'll do what we had proposed and say there's going to be a different tax rate for people who not necessarily foreign, but aren't taxpayers in British Columbia, which could apply to somebody from Toronto and could fail to apply to somebody from Beijing if they're here on a work permit. So maybe, you know, that that's the closest thing to, to a signal that I've seen of where they're headed in February. What do you think about maybe changes coming to Redma and, uh, the, and new construction, like the Real Estate Development Marketing Act and potentially like the uh, assignment, like pre-sale... And- Basically targeting the pre-sale market. Oh, God. That, you know, we, we've talked about that. I think that's the worst idea imaginable. Right. right. Uh, y- y- they might do it. Seems politically if, if, it, it might be popular, though. Oh, too. yeah. Let's get those pre-sale flippers. Yeah. You know, they're, they're speculators and, you know, they're speculating and flipping <laughs> and all that speculation and flipping is In very naughty. Uh, <laughs> shadow flipping, that's right. Shadow speculators. Uh, I, you know, so it might be politically attractive, but I, I, in my opinion, you know, we've got a ton of condos coming online and I would not be surprised if uh, those have an impact on prices and rents. And they probably right. already have in terms of people's expectations. People, I don't know, do you guys ever hear anybody say, well, I, I want to buy a condo, but I'm a little bit worried that there's a, a ton getting built? Or, or does not, nobody ever not, say that? Not in Vancouver, but you hear that in areas like Brentwood, yeah. Um, or you think yeah, about Burnaby's that. Yeah, because building a lot, a lot yeah. quicker and, and the process is a lot easier. More of the, what we hear is that pre-sales are, are just a couple hundred dollars per square foot more than... Than the, the resale built, market built properties yeah. that are say a couple years old so it often there's a disconnect there and it doesn't make much sense right well if it turns out that somebody pays 200 bucks more per square foot in the pre in pre-sale than the thing's going to sell for when it's built you know if, if prices aren't appreciating that guy's a sucker so right. if people want to pour money into construction projects only to see themselves lose money because built units are worth less than flippable uh, assignments on a pre-sale, then they're acting as overactive equity investors and, and they're funding development. Right. right. So you're getting more built, which reduces prices. You know, if the guy's not going to live in the unit, who cares that he, he was speculating it on beforehand? In fact, compare a guy from outside the market who buys a pre-sale unit and carries it as an empty unit in Burnaby, which wouldn't be subject to any special tax. Right, so he wouldn't be a flipper because he's just holding an empty unit. Maybe he shows up for vacation or Airbnb mm-hmm. a few times. Is, is that worse? Is, I'm sorry, is that better and should be taxed less heavily than somebody who holds the unit through pre-sale and just before the unit's built flips it to a local? Right. Well, the second guy is handing housing to a local, which you know reduces local demand and gives somebody a house. 
whereas the other guy isn't creating extra supply. So why would you punish the second guy instead of the first guy with taxes? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that's a real dog in terms of policy, but I'm worried they might go there because I think people think it's a good idea for some reason. One thing we've noticed is that the assignment fees seem to be climbing, <laughs> yeah. you know, and I mean, there's been some uh, quote unquote selfless developers that have come out and said, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to charge an astronomical assignment fee in favor of the local market. But, you know, you, you got to wonder if there's potential for, you know, a policy that could relate to the assignment fee and how it's shared or, or something to that extent. Well, John Stovell, I think, should get the uh, Chutzpah Award of uh, 2017, right? When he he wrote, you know, I'm really worried about locals being able to get into the market. So if anybody flips in my building, which I've already pre-sold, I'm going to charge them a higher rate. (laughs) He's actually coming on the show soon. (laughs) Yeah, ask him about that. So, I mean, I'll tell you what, if he can tell a logically coherent story about how that was him acting out of the goodness of his heart, uh, I'll give him an Emmy, but uh, or whatever. Well, I don't know what the radio Emmy is, but uh, but seriously, do you guys know? I, I'd be curious, right? I mean, if I was a developer and I was just out to make as much money as possible from my development, which I would be, of course, subject to trying to preserve a good reputation and do the right thing. Do you think higher fees on the part of developers? prevent people from flipping? Yeah, it, it really depends. Yeah. I mean, I think it depends on what the market has done and, and how pressed somebody is to get to get out of something, right? Because, I mean, with the foreign buyer's tax, for example, lots of people, uh, when, when assignments were cut off, were negotiating with developers paying much higher assignment fees, you yeah. know, as to avoid paying 15% foreign buyer tax, right? right? So it just depends what the pressures are. But I think it, just from a... a you know, a, a typical person who holds a condo for one year in Vancouver, if the market, you know, hasn't really, really outperformed, yeah, sure, that that would be a huge, you know, five percent would assignment fee would be would be big, right? Yeah, well, and also at least historically, completing on the property and actually holding open houses and running the system of selling your place leads to a better price. It typically does, yeah. So. If you got five percent assignment fee, you know, it doesn't make sense. Assignments are sometimes tough to sell. Yeah. Okay. So, and people can change the rules in the middle of the game. I mean, I think Stovell did that, right? He'd already pre-sold, and then after the pre-sales, he changed the rules uh, on how much he was charging. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I mean, they I can believe that because yeah. those are pretty tough contracts to read, right? You have a rescission period, but I'm guessing a lot of pre-sale buyers are not that well aware of their rights when they buy. Well, usually they look and they see the 1% assignment fee or 1.5% mm. or whatever it is and that it's cut off usually, you know, a month or so before completion and mm. uh, there's, there's But they always, always have to get developer approval though. That's the so, thing. So, mm. so without developer approval, I remember a project that's completed long ago when assignments became popular and the developer, it was literally like they shook down, the deal was done and all that was required was somebody in our office Needed developer approval, and the developer shook them down for like fifteen k to get the approval. Right. I see. So they were exploiting the approval exactly, clause exactly. in the contract. They and were saying it's one percent, but I tell you what, no, I don't like that guy. Yeah, <laughs> I'm worried about him. So give me twenty five. Yeah, or they were really upset with how much money the the person who bought a presale had made on it, and uh, they felt like they were leaving money on the table. So right. Very interesting. You know, you'd think there'd be a reputation cost or something, but uh, yeah. you would think. But I'm not naming names. <laughs> yeah. 
That, that's and it's not a subject to reasonable approval. It's like subject to approval. So Those, I get to hold and you while up. the disclosure statements are so weighted towards a, in the developer's favor, yeah. right? Mm, that's yeah. the and to be fair though, I mean most most of the assignments we've sold, like our team has done pretty probably you know fifty plus assignments yeah. in the past year, and it's pretty smooth. Most developers will approve them at the uh, at the suggested yeah, rate in the contract. I wonder, do you think developers pro forma some flip fees? Or do you, they I see it as gravy? I've never seen it in a pro forma. You know, personally, the pro forma is usually they're on smaller projects that we're looking at, but yeah. I've never seen an assignment fee worked into a pro forma. Yeah. I, I, it would be interesting to see what the numbers are. And, yeah, and maybe, my, maybe my understanding one. of the assignments that have come out in the last couple of years took everybody by surprise, really. I think the number huh. and how. That, that's my understanding. I, right. Well, I tell you, you know, when we think about what's going to happen to the market going forward, I think the extent of assignment pre-completion, is, uh, to me, that seems like a big issue because nothing's going to be finished that wasn't already pre-sold. So in that way, the fact that these buildings are finishing may not have a lot of impact on the market. But if, uh, you know, 50% of the units are going to flip before the building finishes or right when the building finishes, well, then you got a lot of new effective supply coming on when the flips occur. So do you guys uh, have a read or an opinion on when a building finishes, you know, in the last few months before completion, how much gets pre-sold? Or I'm sorry, resold, flipped? Well, <laughs> you mean in, from an assignment perspective? Yeah, take a building downtown, like a fancy downtown, you know, building. Uh, if, if I'm in the last month or two months before completion, how many units do I think are, are going to get sold as a percentage of all the units in the building Re- a, resold? It really, it really depends. Yeah, but usually, I, you know, what I would say to that is just that usually people we find with our clients is most of the time they're thinking about assigning the contract towards completion. That that tends to be where probably the uh, I would say the the, the most majority, assignments yeah. happen in the in you know say call it yeah. the six months before the project completes. Yeah, but, yeah. so but, we may see a fair amount come up through in, in the resale, whatever you want to call it, market. Well, that's where, and then also, I mean, when a building actually completes, uh, that's where you see you a know bunch a, come a, on. a huge amount come on the market. You know, from investors yeah. or people that have uh, their life has changed over the course of the three years it took to build the project, right? It's interesting. Who should pay the uh, GST? Do you want the original purchaser of the uh, unit or the assignee to, to pay the sales tax? Yeah, well, somebody's got to pay. Well, that's the thing. So it's it's uh, obviously negotiable, but the, it, it's funny. Like we've we've come across it in the standard MLS agreement. It's it suggests that the uh, the original purchaser pays the GST, mm. whereas mm. in some of the developer consent forms, it indicates that the the assignee has to pay, not the assigner. Um, Interesting. So there's often a conflict there uh, that, you know, a lot of people miss. So it becomes very contentious. And, uh, you know, after the fact, it's a lot more painful, right? When people don't know who's paying GST. Well, yeah. You factor in another 35K or whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you, though, I, I'd have to guess. The, the other thing is a lot of rentals going to come on the market. That'll be interesting to see because down condo rents, right? They've really uh, accelerated. Uh, but you got to think a lot of these are investors, whether they're flippers or not. You, well, know, you should see a lot of new rental well, going on there, in the next the, few years. Yeah, and there is even right now, uh, my understanding in the last couple of months with the empty homes tax and the Airbnb, you know, changes to those those rules. There's a lot of my understanding right now. A lot of units that are furnished are on the market, and it's a direct result of those policy changes. 
Yeah, it's great. You know, I mean, I, I've been looking at uh, rental data and I, you know, it's hard to tell. The data is pretty noisy and, you know, th- there's no standard form of collecting the data. But my impression is, you know, rents after the summer when this uh, empty homes tax warning letter started coming, I think they've slowed down. Yeah. But yeah. I can't talk about submarkets too well. No, well, I mean, it's, it, yeah, I think, and obviously it depends on the price band uh, for sure. But uh, we, we're kind of hearing that from property managers as well. That's is particularly the over kind of $3,000, $4,000 market has, has softened quite a bit. Mm. I don't know if that's what you're seeing in your data. I, I, I should get more into the nitty gritty. I just look at, you know, it seems to be across the board. Things were going up and they've slowed down. But the thing is, you know, I think they've, I don't know that they've slowed down more in Vancouver than Burnaby and, you know, whether they should have or shouldn't, right? If Vancouver rents fall, do they have to fall in, or slow down? Do they have to slow down in Burnaby? It depends how well they see people substitute between the two. What I've seen actually just from, you know, talking to agents right across uh, lower mainland is that rents in, you know, suburban areas have really crept up to the point that they obviously they haven't caught up to Vancouver rents but the you know in terms of the purchase price buying I mean the cap rates are are much better in greater Vancouver than they are in Vancouver yeah. obviously so the rents have gotten to a point like I can't believe I I, w- I was talking to an agent I know in Chilliwack the other day and he was saying the rents are astronomical right now and the cap rates out there yeah, are pretty good as well right? right where you look and you see basement suites and detached houses renting for you know 1400 bucks a month and and uh you know depending on of course the number of bedrooms and everything else but mm. and you know a house bringing in 32 grand or 3200 bucks a month is uh is surprising well you know for a long time we didn't see the rental growth and we did see the big price growth and that makes people smell bubble right i mean because the fundamental is the rent you know if you have stuff selling for 4 million bucks that rents for 2 grand a month it doesn't work Mm-hmm. But uh, when you start when you start to see rental acceleration, then and not to say prices can't correct, but but you got to see the rental appreciation to believe the, the kind of pricing we're seeing. And you know it, 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 it's very interesting. I, I also think I, I have a theory that could be wrong, which you know my initial instinct would be you know interest rates go up, and uh, that shouldn't really affect rents much because renters don't care about uh, in, in interest rates because it's not their problem. It's the landlord's problem, and there's only so many rentals, so renters are kind of paying what they can pay, and that's not changing with interest rates. But I bet there's a fair number of landlords out there who sort of set their rents based on what they need to cover their nut or whatever. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's. I think that's been what's driving in a lot of cases. It used to be, you know, 20% down, uh, whatever I can get to kind of cover my cost was what was really pushing a lot of the rents in, in the downtown area. Yeah. So we may see, uh, you know, everybody's like, well, you know, things will get more affordable if rates go up. Well, <laughs> not for the first time buyer, like, because the rates are reducing the affordability mm-hmm. and, and then rents could get worse too. So this maybe brings us to our, uh, we'll, our final, uh, yeah, every, our final every question, final question. <laughs> and like we do with you every January now, Tom, it's becoming a, a yeah. thing. Any, any predictions for the market in 2018? Well, the tradition is I get it wrong. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I was pessimistic last year. Boy, you know, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna go back to uh, today's price is the best predictor you have of tomorrow's price. That's what I'm supposed to say as an economist. I'd say, you know, take today's uh, price in every uh, asset class, and, and and that's where I think that's my best guess of where we'll be next year. But I say that with a lot of uncertainty. You know, immigration isn't stopping. Uh, the, the fundamentals. You know, we're, we're building more, but it, 
you know, it's getting tough to get projects going because of the uh, bottlenecks in, in getting contractors and permits and what have you. Right. So there's a lot of positives for the market. We can, we, you know, everybody's talked about the negatives with the stress test rates creeping up and, you know, just very rich pricing to begin with. Who knows what the province will cook up in February? There's the lingering effects of empty homes, foreign buyer. Uh, so there's a lot, a lot of headwinds too. So best guess we're, we're where we are, but there is, you know, for me to be surprised next January, uh, prices would probably have to move 25% in one direction or the other for mm-hmm. me to even register any surprise. So you heard, you heard it here first. Ask uh, me about Bitcoin. <laughs> I don't know. That, that's another one. I keep waiting. I actually, as a, another thought here, Tom, you, you're from New York originally. And um, what are your thoughts on the uh, U.S. market this year? Ooh, good question. You know, the interesting thing about the U.S. is there's a real dearth of condo and, and rentals. You know, no, nobody was building multifamily, and uh, people built a lot of rental buildings. You've actually apparently seen rents start to fall in some markets like New York and Seattle because they've built so much rental stuff. Uh, and part of that is in a lot of states, the litigation risk with condo is just horrible. You know, buyers have a long time to go after the builder for defects. And, you know, there's, there's, it's hard to literally limit the liability that a builder can face, you know, for having done something marginally screwy. So that's been an interesting factor to see whether you were actually going to see coastal markets see construction of rental buildings literally impacting rents. You know, nobody believes it can happen here, uh, but but rents do seem to have been tamed by supply in a lot of U.S. cities. But, you know, with the very low interest rate environment, the U.S. has sort of recovered, but but not at the rate of uh, Canada. So are we going to continue to see the crazy price growth we've seen in California and New York you know, I don't know. Once again, I, I'm a little skeptical. I think U.S. interest rate risk may be uh, greater than Canada's because of the deficit stuff going on. I mean, the, the U.S. is building up some pretty juicy deficits. And, uh, you know, I don't know that anybody has a, has a great plan to, to repay it. Uh, the economy is extremely strong in the U.S., so uh, wouldn't be surprised to see uh, rates uh, offsetting price pressure there. So, oh, wait, one more on the coastal U.S., you know, the write-off thing the Republicans did is pretty interesting. They've really limited people's ability to uh, write off uh, mortgage interest to some extent and to a big extent state and local uh, income taxes and property taxes. So in the U.S., unlike Canada, if you're a homeowner, you get to deduct at, you know, your top at your marginal tax rate, the income tax you pay and your property tax. So, you know, half of that almost is a write-off under current law, under the old law, but under the new law, it's not. So that could really impact pricing in a place like San Diego or San Francisco. Hmm. Right. Well, I, I, I think that's probably it, Tom. I was going to ask you, I was just had a thought when you were first talking, and maybe we won't keep this in, but I just had a question about, and I, when you came to UBC, um, I was wondering if the problem of Vancouver housing was, was an, attracted you to the city in any way and, and more like a question about did you ever foresee yourself being kind of one of the central voices in, in this uh, crazy situation that we're in? No. You know, uh, I did worry <laughs> amazingly in 2009. You know, we bought a place, but I thought, oh, gosh, you know, that, uh, this price, these prices don't make sense. There's going to be a correction like in the States. And that was, I don't know, 100 percent ago or more uh, in terms of prices. So, uh, you know, a- any coastal market where it's hard to build and it's a great place, you know, there's going to be some action. 
But I did not foresee, I mean, the, the price increases we saw through 2014 were really something, but 2014 through 17 were just, I had no idea that would right. happen. Now, you know, I did a lot of media in California, but, you know, California is a big place. The states, there's a ton of housing economists. What's been great about this recent thing, just as a life experience, is, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of respect for analysis here uh, in British Columbia. And, you know, there's not that many uh, high-end academic institutions where people are doing research. So the ability to talk to policymakers and business people has just been such a privilege. You know, know, it's it's sad that people are struggling with affordability. We've all had our problems. But but just as an opportunity to really uh, interact and, and learn from people and see what's driving policy, it's just no. I had absolutely no idea that would happen. It's been great. Like it seems like you're kind of become a public intellectual in that way that almost public intellectuals Does, don't exist. Yeah, it anymore. doesn't really exist anymore. <laughs> well, you got to be an intellectual to stay a public intellectual, and uh, I, I, I'm committed to only doing good stuff like uh, this podcast. And uh, really try and lock myself in my office, do coding, analyze data, publish actual academic research again. Um, you know, yeah. to- tooting one's own horn is fun, and, and I hope I've added some insights. Uh, but repeating myself for the millionth time, I got to be careful about because because there's a million offers, but my job is to uh, produce research and teach. Fair enough. So, Tom, uh, maybe we'll leave it there. Then, thanks again for being on. And uh, how can people find out more about your research and what you're doing? Well, uh, they can go to, uh, well, they can Google me or follow me on Twitter. I'm at Tom Davidoff. And they can go to my webpage. If you uh, Google me, you'll find me or go to blogs.ubc.ca slash Davidoff. Uh, I got one piece I'm, I'm working on with, uh, I think we've mentioned it, with uh, auctioning uh, redevelopment rights that I'm pretty excited about, not a... Uh, not a piece of uh, academic, you know, publishable research, but I think hopefully an interesting guide to policy, and I uh, hope that'll generate some excitement. Well, maybe we'll have you back on when uh, when that's released, if you got the Should time. Should be soon. Right Excellent. on. Yep. Thanks so much for your time, Tom. Really Terrific, appreciate guys. it. Thank you so much. Good Thanks. luck in the new year. Okay, you Thanks. as well. Bye. Yep. Bye-bye. So there you have it, folks, our discussion with Tom Davidoff, UBC Solder School of Business professor and all around... Uh, Good guy. Brilliant guy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. he's uh, he's phenomenal and, and we love having Tom on. Interview went long, but uh, very enjoyable and hopefully everybody took something away from that interview. And For uh, sure. I felt like near the end there it was Tom uh, interviewing us. But He's good I at think, turning tables too. I think, it, I think it led to an interesting discussion and so hopefully you guys uh, took something out of that. Yeah, for sure. And Matt, uh, before we sign off for the day, uh, we've, we've mentioned it at the beginning of the podcast, but we have a new website launching next week. We've been working hard at it. And uh, I'm super excited. I'm I'm in love with this website. And we and we should say, I mean, it, it's an amazing new website. It's got tons of new features, but the old standards are still there. The most important stuff. We got the research tools. We got private client services. Matt, if you're not using private client services, you're standing still while the rest of us are power walking by. 
What does private client services bring to the table? Matt, Adam? it's realtor level information. You get listing updates 36 to 72 hours before the general public. It's also gives you sold prices, which is amazing. And it's just more user friendly. I mean, you have your basically your own portal. You never miss a listing and uh, you get to see it first. Exactly. It's a, your one-stop shop. They also have a mobile app. The mobile app is not as useful as the other mobile app we have on our site. So if you're looking for listings on your phone where you're going to get sold prices. You're talking HomeSpotter. Yeah, we're talking sold prices. Right. We're talking early access. The platform is amazing. And it's got this crazy virtual reality the virtual component. reality. What, Braden, what is that called? We need somebody under uh, 25. Augmented reality. Oh, right. It's Braden's the thing of the 25. future. <laughs> augmented reality. So you just point it at a building and it can tell you there's listings in this building. That's right. So go to the mobile app, sign up, and get that app for sure. Uh, what else? We got the deal of the month. Deal of the, the month. Yeah, yeah. join se- over seventeen thousand subscribers to our mailing growing list. number. A growing number. It's soon to be eighteen thousand, and uh, these people are benefiting from tips, deal of the month, and they're also getting a ton of useful real estate information. Right? Tons of useful information. And, and- you, this is no spam list. This is we don't want to spam you. We just want to give you good, clear useful information. That's exactly it. And uh, and that information is just growing. 2018 is going to be a huge year for this podcast. We're very excited. So if you want to get in touch with me, this is Matt here, 778-847-2854 or Matt at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. And Adam? Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or Adam at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. And another big uh, thing that's happening in 2018. Can't I can't believe I, it. I, I guess we're the first to announce this. He's Bra- all grown Bra- up. Brady D. Brady D is <laughs> getting into real estate. He's getting licensed i think Woo. we're gonna have to start calling him by his real name something which, professional which is, which is? Yeah. uh Br- Br- brady well we know it's Brady. <laughs> i know it's Br- <laughs> we've forgotten what is your name brayden dikowski dikowski and what's a pitch what's your trademark uh, call dikowski i'll sell your house key <laughs> so that's just you, you'll just sell the key to their house well you know it's <laughs> i think it's implied that the whole house comes with it oh yeah okay all right, key. All right. but how so, can people reach you Braden? i'll give my my official realtor email snowlover79 at oh, hotmail.com <laughs> Oh God! This is you. Your branding needs work. But why? Why? Why seventy nine? Well, I made it in high school, and what? You've never tried a seventy nine? <laughs> I'm intrigued, but no. Uh, but great. All right. Well, have a great week, guys. Take care. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today. Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? 
playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah. You know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the way. I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer. And they're looking for both donations and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020. 